You're listening to Truly Criminal, the home of true crime. To see the video version of this case, including the footage and photos, you can find us on YouTube. Just search for Truly Criminal. California is a state that needs little introduction. With a population of almost 40 million people, many travel from far and wide to visit the Golden State. Home to glitz and glamour, golden beaches and gorgeous scenery, Silicon Valley and the Hollywood elite. But like most places, California is definitely not without a darker side. Today, we are looking at a series of appalling crimes spanning across 15 years and only reaching a conclusion in 2021. This is the story of the Hollywood Ripper. This story covers almost two decades and actually begins in 1993. But sometimes you first must go forwards in order to work backwards. We'll begin today's episode in 2001 in Los Angeles, California. One person that called this place home was 22-year-old Ashley Ellerin, an up-and-coming fashion student finding her way in the hustle and bustle of LA. She was feisty and fearless, and everybody said she was career-focused and determined to be a success. After gaining a place at the Los Angeles Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising, she started taking extra classes at UCLA and got a part-time job as a dancer out in Vegas. Ashley was working long hours every single day, carving out her own path in the busy city. She was sharing a bungalow with some friends on a nice little street in an idyllic location. Just a short walk away from the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Given her job and the social circles she was running in because of her fashion work, Ashley soon started catching the eye of big Hollywood stars. She briefly dated Vin Diesel and was also romantically linked to Law and Order's Jeremy Sisto, who even flew Ashley over to one of his film sets. In December 2000, she started talking to an actor whose star was rapidly rising in Hollywood, 23-year-old Ashton Kutcher. Currently starring in the hit TV programme That 70s Show, and having just rapped on the movie Dude, Where's My Car?, he and Ashley had met through mutual friends and hit it off right away. February 21st, 2001 was the night of the Grammys and Ashton was going to an after-party at a friend's house. Ashley and Ashton spoke on the phone and the pair made plans to hang out after the party. Ashton said he would meet her at her bungalow and they could go for dinner and drinks. Ashley spent her day catching up with her dad, who was visiting from out of town. After this, Ashley's landlord, Mark, came over to see her. It would later come out that the pair had been seeing each other on and off for a while and slept together that evening. At around 8.30pm, Ashton called Ashley to confirm their plans. He told her he was running behind and maybe they should just grab some drinks and pass on dinner. She said that was fine as she was just out of the shower anyway and would slowly start getting ready. At around 10.15pm, Ashton called Ashley again but her phone rang out. He headed over to her bungalow anyway. The lights were on and her car was parked outside. 
After knocking on the door several times and getting no answer, he peered through a gap in a side window. It looked messy inside, but Ashley had told him she was in the middle of remodelling, so the mess didn't seem too out of place. He could see some red on the floor and assumed it was a glass of wine that she had spilled. As he was later than he initially told her he would be, he thought that she was simply mad at him and had either gone out or gone to bed. With this, he left. The next morning, Ashley's roommate walked in to a frightening scene. Ashley was on the floor outside her bedroom in a pool of blood. She had been stabbed 47 times, with some of the wounds being almost six inches deep and her head was almost severed. Her body was already turning blue and it was clear that she had been dead for hours. The body of 22-year-old Ashley Lauren Ellerin was found by her roommate early Thursday morning. The relatively quiet community was completely stunned. Ashley's death was shocking and on everybody's minds. Her family and friends gave police all the contacts and information they could, but for somebody who was as busy and popular as Ashley, detectives had a lot of names to get through. The only neighbour that could offer them anything said they thought they heard something that sounded like shouting just after 8.30pm, but they put it down to a party or a gathering. They hadn't seen anyone coming or going, and apart from the noise, there was nothing else that seemed noteworthy. The police started with the man she was supposed to be seeing that night, Ashton Kutcher. He told them that he was worried, as although he had nothing to do with her death, his fingerprints were on her door handle. They asked him some routine questions, and he was very quickly ruled out. He was shaken and upset about what he now realised he'd seen inside, but he simply couldn't help the police any further. Another person they wanted to talk to was Ashley's landlord, given their relationship, but he was also eliminated from the investigation. The bungalow was very secure and double-gated, and as there was no sign of a forced entry, it meant that she had opened the door to her killer, which implied she potentially knew them. One of the names her friends handed over to the officers was Mike, the furnace man. They didn't know a lot about it, just that he was someone Ashley had complained about pestering her for a while, with some of her friends saying he was creepy, always hanging around, and turning up uninvited. After several months, the Los Angeles Police Department finally landed on a name, Michael Gargiulo. As detectives started trying to locate Michael to ask him some questions about his whereabouts that night and his connection to Ashley they received a surprising call from the Cook County Sheriff's Office in Illinois. They had recently opened up a cold case from 1993 and were looking for someone currently living in Los Angeles that might be able to help them. None other than Michael Gargiulo. The LAPD could not believe what they were hearing and knew this was no coincidence. The Illinois case that was currently being investigated was the 1993 murder of Trisha Picaccio an 18-year-old who had been stabbed nearly 50 times on the steps of her family home. On the night of Friday, August 13th, Trisha met up with some friends for dinner at a TGI's. It was one of their last nights together 
before they all went their separate ways to various universities. That night, she and her friend stayed together until about 1am, and after dropping her friends home, Trisha drove home herself. Just a few hours later, Trisha's father, Rick, found his daughter dead on the front steps of their home as he left to walk the dog. He said the first thing he saw when he stepped outside were her little tennis shoes before he fell onto his knees, screaming. She was covered in wounds and blood and one of her arms had been broken. She was still clutching her house key in her hand. She was found violently stabbed and slain near the doorway of her family home just days before she was supposed to have begun her college career. She had fought her killer hard and there was DNA under her fingernails. But these samples would lie dormant for many years, given the fact that forensic technology was in its infancy. Trisha's parents said that she was a dream child, a straight-A student, a debate team champion, and one of the hardest working and kindest people they knew. She was set to study engineering at Purdue University, and was most definitely up for any challenges life threw her way. Nobody could believe that anyone would want to hurt her in such a brutal way, and they simply had no names and no suspects. Before long, Trisha Picaccio's case went cold. Her mother, Diane, said that the police had told her, unfortunately some cases just didn't get solved, and that's the way it was. She said... If they thought they were going to turn up on my doorstep and tell me that I have to accept that, they knocked on the wrong door. But sadly for the family, it seemed it had just been them fighting for answers for the last seven years, until it was reopened, now that forensic testing had come such a long way. The Cook County Sheriff's Office wanted samples from everybody that had been in contact with Trisha around that time. After she was found on that fateful morning, Michael Gargiulo had actually been one of the first people on the police's radar. He had admitted to driving Trisha to a friend's house two days before she was killed. He was also good friends with her brother Doug and a frequent face at the Picaccio home. He was questioned by police in 1993, but no charges were filed. And now, almost a decade later, officers wanted to talk to him again. As soon as the murders of Ashley and Trisha were compared, the similarities in the way both women had been killed could not be overlooked. Los Angeles police now needed to find Michael even quicker, and after a few months of looking, they finally located him. The first thing they wanted was a DNA sample. But he refused, saying he had nothing to do with either case, and without a warrant, he wasn't going to hand anything over. With this the officers had no choice but to leave. They kept tabs on Michael for a while, and when they found out he had briefly been admitted to hospital, they secretly got their DNA sample from there. After a long wait, the results finally came back. Michael Gargiulo's DNA was a positive match to the DNA found under Trisha's fingernails all those years ago. Investigators were so relieved they went straight to the attorney's office, looking to seek an indictment for murder. The attorney's office, however, refused to take it any further, 
They said that the DNA could have been exchanged through casual contact, given the fact that Michael knew Trisha and her brother from school. But according to witnesses, Trisha spent the night with many people, including her boyfriend, but the only DNA found on her was Michael's. A second blow came when the LAPD determined that they had no physical evidence tying Michael to the murder of Ashley Ellerin, and they announced that no charges would be filed there either. Detectives had been on the cusp of catching a dangerous killer, and it had slipped through their hands in an instant. But they knew that this had to be their man. They just had to go back through his history and gather as much as they could about his character, prior relationships, and previous crimes. So, who was Michael Gargiulo, and what had led to all of this? Born in 1976, Michael Thomas Gargiulo grew up in a quiet suburb of Glenview, Illinois. He was from a big family, having seven brothers and sisters. He would tell people he suffered physical abuse at the hands of his father and other siblings, although these claims were never corroborated. As he entered his teenage years, Michael gained a reputation as a bully with a quick and aggressive temper. He was also known to lie compulsively and exaggerate things all the time. One of his friends recalled he could go from being perfectly pleasant to almost inhuman in a split second. Michael soon started getting arrested for things, like breaking into unlocked cars in his school and fighting with people. He developed a fascination with the serial killer Ted Bundy and spent countless hours deep in books about forensic science, something he soon took great pride in knowing a lot about. He told people if he ever got caught committing a crime, he would either know how to get himself out of it or he would lie until he dies. After Trisha was killed in 1993, the Picaccio family started receiving gifts from Michael, a t-shirt for Rick, a restaurant voucher and some flowers for Diane. Michael then showed up at their house, asking to talk to Rick. They said it looked like he wanted to get something off his chest. He waited for him to come home for almost an hour, before abruptly leaving without saying anything. Rick and Diane were so on edge after this strange encounter, they got straight on the phone and told the detectives what had happened. The police did log it, but it was never followed up on. In 1997, officers saw another chance to try and get Michael to talk about Trisha. He was charged with stealing a car, and police said if he told them what he knew about Trisha's murder, they could cut him a deal on the charges. But he still sat quiet and said nothing at all. Former girlfriends of Michael had horror stories to tell of their time with him. One said when she was 17, he handcuffed and raped her. Another one of Michael's exes said he punched her in the face so hard she ended up with a detached retina. He threatened to kill her, saying he would be able to get away with it because of his extensive knowledge of forensics. In 1998, Michael decided he was going to go to LA to chase a dream that many share when they move there. He wanted to be an actor and a model. Your name? Mike Gertulo. And how tall are you? 6'2". And how much do you weigh? 
165. Michael quickly got a job as a bouncer at the Rainbow Bar and Grill on Sunset Boulevard, West Hollywood. No sooner had he been hired, he was let go for punching a customer in the face. During his brief time there, Michael made friends with two other bouncers. They said that Michael had once asked them if they'd ever killed anyone. He then admitted to murdering Trisha Picaccio back in 1993. I buried a bitch. I left the bitch on the steps for dead, he calmly said. With Michael's reputation as a liar, the two men assumed that this was just another one of his wild stories. In the fall of 2000, Michael met Ashley Ellerin, who at the time was living just across the street from him in Hollywood. He offered to help her change a flat tyre, and the pair exchanged numbers. This short encounter soon became a fatal obsession. Before long, he was trying to visit her at all hours of the day and night, sitting outside her home in his car and turning up wherever she was. Despite all of this and the DNA matches, four years would pass since that fateful day back in February 2001, when Ashley was found dead, and over a decade since Trisha was killed. It was now 2005, and police were still working on both cases. Although they still only had one suspect, they didn't have enough to meet the threshold of what was required to file charges. To their horror and dismay, another shocking and disturbing crime was about to take place across the city. A 32-year-old mother of four, Maria Bruno, was starting fresh in a new apartment complex in East LA. She had recently separated from her husband and she moved into a new place, looking forward to a new start. She told everyone she had spent a lot of time choosing the apartment and had picked it because of its security and how safe it felt for her and her young family. She had two-year-old twins, a four-year-old and a five-year-old. Just ten days after moving in, on December the 1st, 2005, Maria was found dead by her ex-husband, Irving. Her ex-husband found her mutilated body and called 911. She had been stabbed 17 times. Her throat had been slit and both her breasts had been cut off. The only clue left at the scene was a blue surgical shoe cover with a small amount of Maria's blood on it. Whoever her killer was, they had broken in via the kitchen window at around 1am and used one of her own knives to kill her. Experts determined the killer was left-handed. Police's first thought was that Irving might have something to do with it. They had separated on bad terms after their relationship had become more volatile but Irving said the pair were working on getting their marriage back on track and had even been out for dinner the night before. There were a couple of drops of Maria's blood found inside his car, but he said this was easily explained. While at the restaurant table, Maria cut her finger and a few employees came to help her as well, corroborating what Irving had said. After police ruled him out, they were left with nothing. One detective said it was almost like she was killed for the sake of it and they had nothing to go on apart from hoping there was some more DNA found on the shoe cover. But a few neighbours had their eyes on another man, who was living just across the courtyard from Maria at the time. 
He always acted and behaved oddly, but in the days and hours leading up to her death, he was acting even more strangely than usual. They gave police a description and a sketch was drawn up. The man they were describing was Michael Gargiulo. Michael was long gone by the time the investigation got underway and another awful crime would remain unsolved for several years. It was around this time that Trisha's parents back in Illinois finally learned that there had been a hit on the DNA sample from their daughter's case. They were appalled that it had taken them so long to learn about this and that Michael was still out there, free, facing no charges. Another three years would pass, taking us to 2008. In an apartment complex in Santa Monica lived 26-year-old Michelle Murphy. Late one April night, Michelle woke up to a man in her bedroom wearing a hoodie and a hat. He launched at her and started stabbing her. Michelle was petite, standing at just five foot one, and before she knew it, she was fighting for her life against someone that was completely overpowering her. She grabbed the blade with both hands, trying to get him to lose control of it. She was screaming so loudly, she knew it was a matter of time before someone heard her. In the last-ditch attempt to get him off her, and with all of her remaining strength, she tucked her knees in towards her chest and pushed both legs out at him, causing him to fall off the bed. After this, her attacker ran out of the room, saying... I'm sorry. Michelle was left battered and bleeding on the bed, but she had survived. She called her boyfriend and he called for help. Her attacker was left-handed and, fortunately, had been cut with the blade in the fight, leaving his blood in her apartment. Sure enough, when the Santa Monica Police Department ran the blood through the database, they got a match, and it went right back to the DNA that was found under Trisha Picaccio's nails. And they also realised it matched DNA that was found along the elastic part of the blue surgical shoe cover outside Maria Bruno's apartment. Michael Gargiulo's despicable acts weren't stopping or slowing down. Far from it. And finally, with this, after 15 years, his horrific crime spree would come to an end. In June 2008, he was placed under arrest for the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy and held on a $1.1 million bail. A search of his car uncovered many items of evidentiary value, including some blue surgical shoe covers. Three months later, Michael was also charged with the murders of both Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno. However... It would take until 2011 for Michael to be charged with the murder of Trisha Picaccio too. Because Trisha's case had happened in Illinois and Ashley, Maria and Michelle were all in California, it meant that Michael would have to have two separate trials 
in both states. Michael Gargiulo pleaded not guilty to all charges, and, after many pushbacks due to him hiring and firing lawyers, and some attempted escapes from prison, in May 2019, his California trial finally got underway. By this point, it had taken Michael longer to go to trial than any other inmates in the history of the LA County Jail. His defence team said he had suffered mental health issues and was unable to recall attacking Michelle, and it was up to a jury to decide if he was sane at the time or not. This would obviously result in a very different possible sentence, so this decision was not made lightly. Well, tonight, a verdict in the sanity phase of the Hollywood Ripper trial. A jury decided Marco Gargiulo was sane when he murdered two women and then tried to kill a third. Well, that same jury must now decide whether to recommend that Gargiulo will get a death sentence or life without parole. A jury found Michael Gargiulo sane, and this paved the way for prosecutors to seek the death penalty if he was found guilty. Comments he made after his arrest led investigators to believe he could be responsible for as many as 10 murders. He's been charged with two murders and one attempted murder here in L.A. Tomorrow, opening statements are expected to start. The methodical and systematic slaughter of women by Michael Gargiulo, that's what this case is about. What you will hear is that Michael Gargiulo, for almost 15 years, was watching. And his hobby was plotting the perfect opportunity to attack women with a knife in and around their homes. From the outset, you will hear that Gargiulo was a neighborhood kid who grew up in suburban Chicago, and he was a husband and a father. What no one knew for many years, however, was that Michael Gargiulo was leading a double life. When the case is put on by the prosecution, I can assure you at the conclusion of that presentation of evidence, you will not find one single bit of physical evidence attributed to Miss Ellerman's death. 36,000 pages of evidence had been gathered and hundreds of witnesses were called to testify, two of which were Michelle Murphy and Ashton Kutcher. 41-year-old actor, he arrived for court this morning in a blue suit, seeming very nervous. Now, he only spoke for about 20 minutes, but his testimony was an important one. He served as a witness for the prosecution. This was the first time he spoke out regarding this case. The prosecution painted a damning picture of Michael Gargiulo. They laid out his patterns of behaviour, his past relationships, the fact he was left-handed, the DNA evidence, and where he lived in relation to all the women. The jury then left the courtroom to go and see the apartment buildings and get a clearer idea of just how close Michael was to them and how easy it would have been for him to see into their homes and keep tabs on them. 
White vans carried the jury in the Hollywood Ripper case to the scenes of two crimes. We were instructed not to show the jurors. The first location was the home of Michelle Murphy. Jurors were also taken to a second location, this Hollywood home where 22-year-old Ashley Ellerin lived. Prosecutors say Gargiulo lived in a building close to Ellerin's home. He met her once as he changed a tire, then allegedly stalked and murdered her. Michael's defense team, however raised the fact that no evidence had actually been found in Ashley's home. There was no DNA, no witnesses. It was purely circumstantial evidence, which they argued threw into question the entire trial. Ashley Ellerin's landlord, Mark, then became the defence's focus, and they argued it was entirely possible that after they had slept together that evening, he had killed her. They said this was further corroborated by the fact that when Ashton called her, She told him she was just getting out of the shower and Mark had already admitted to being there at that time. They said given how she was found, how soon after she got out of the shower she was killed and the fact that just after 8.30 a neighbour heard something, it put Mark right there at the time and he was most definitely not in the clear. The law enforcement concluded one or two things on how the person who killed this element one conclusion that she knew the person. The other conclusion is that whoever made him be into the location had a key and locked the door. You're going to learn in this trial that there were four people who had keys to the residence of Ashley Ellerman. Obviously, Ashley had a key to the house. Her roommate at the time, Jennifer Cisco, had a key to the residence. There was a friend of hers and a former room, roommate. And then lastly, and I think significantly, the apartment, or I should say the building manager, a man by the name of Mark Durbin. Mark Durbin. I think he's going to be an important witness for you to focus on They also said that the DNA found near Maria Bruno's home was probably because Michael was a repairman at the time. He could have worn a pair of these during a job on the complex and innocently become caught up in the investigation. His lawyer pointed towards her estranged ex-husband and their toxic marriage. The prosecution, however, said that this was nothing more than a desperate attempt to point the finger at innocent people that had already been cleared by police many years ago. Given Michael's obsession with Ashley Ellerin, he was likely watching her bungalow all evening. When he saw Mark leave, he spotted his opportunity and ran over, taking him just seconds. Ashley could have opened the door straight away, thinking it was Mark coming back to get something. And, as it was just a matter of minutes later, she would still be in her robe from the shower. They said the same could be applied to Maria Bruno, and the DNA evidence was clear as it was in the case of Michelle Murphy. The trial was a gruelling one for everybody. Even reporters who were seasoned in these type of cases and knew them pretty well often had to turn their heads away because the evidence was so graphic and gruesome. As everything came to an end, it was now up to the jury. news this morning in the trial of the so-called Hollywood Ripper, Michael Gargiulo has been found guilty on all counts for the violent murders of two women in Los Angeles County and the attempted murder of a third woman. Despite the defense's arguments, 
Michael Gargiulo was found guilty on all charges. And in late 2019, the jury unanimously reached the conclusion that he should be sentenced to death, believing no other sentence was appropriate. Their recommendation was heard and agreed upon. And in 2021, 45-year-old Michael Gargiulo was sentenced to death for the murders of Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno. He was sentenced to death. Before the judge handed down his sentence, the lone survivor of Gargiulo's attacks, Michelle Murphy, and Ashley Ellerin's father, told the court how one man destroyed so many lives. He is unlikely to be put to death anytime soon, however, as the state of California has not executed anyone since 2006, and Governor Gavin Newsom halted executions for as long as he is in office. But courts have been working on the assumption that executions may one day resume. Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Larry Paul Fidler said, In this case, everywhere that Mr Gargiulo went, death and destruction followed. Ashley's parents, Maria's ex-husband Irving, and Trisha's family, among others, all gave powerful victims' impact statements. He said, Cynthia, I'm going to tell you something that's the worst thing that you ever heard in your life. And I went, well, okay. You know, I never figured something like that. And uh, he said Ashley was mur mur murdered. And I... I fell to my knees on the floor. And I started what I started crawling around the bedroom on my hands and knees like an animal, screaming. Your wife, Maria, was murdered in 2005, is that correct? That is correct, sir. When Maria was killed, how many children did you have with her? Four children. After you found out that Maria was killed, um, did you have to make decisions as a parent, as to what to tell your children. How was she killed? Just as a parent, I felt no need from for my children to know specifics. Monster exists among us. How is it fair that one person's actions can destroy the lives of so many? Her room is the same, the bedspread's the same, the bed's the same, the drapes are the same. And my grandkids go in there and play, and that's how I introduce them to Trisha. And that's how my granddaughter knows her very well. She wears her clothes, she puts on her high heels, and she enjoys it very much. All Michael Gargiulo had to say was, I'm going to death row wrongfully. I've been framed by tunnel vision detectives. What is the difference of me, Your Honor, wanting to testify and having that ultimate fundamental choice and being denied that because I'm prevented by my attorney telling me he's not going to help me, he doesn't want nothing to do with my testimony, and then... You allowed him, Your Honor, to do that. I'm not telling you your job, but it was my assumption as, as a judge, Your Honor, that 
It is my ultimate choice. If I want to testify, that's my right. That's, that's very crucial for me to maintain my innocence. And I feel that the court and defense counsel erred and violated my fundamental choice by going further to the point where I had to be asked the second time when I already knew that I couldn't testify because you, you Your Honor, and defense counsel blocked that fundamental choice. Michael will now face extradition to begin trial for Trisha's murder, but this date has not yet been confirmed. Officers from all forces that dealt with this believe that unfortunately there will be more victims out there. During one of Michael's police interviews, he gave several partial confessions, alluding to killing at least 10 women, but he refuses to give any further details. The police continue to follow up on leads and tips, and hope that a fuller picture will be painted over time, and more closure can be found in doing so. They also admit that there were many failings within the investigations, and how things were handled. I can't put a happy face on this, because we dropped the ball. No ifs, ands, or buts about it, said one of the detectives. When asked about the fact that Cook County prosecutors refused to seek an indictment for Trisha's murder sooner, another detective said, I'm not privy to everything they have, but I gotta say... If I'd had evidence like that, you'd bet that the LA District Attorney's Office would have had a filing, and these other girls wouldn't be dead. Plain and simple, they wouldn't be dead. For the family and friends that Trisha, Ashley and Maria left behind, the brutal way in which they were killed will forever haunt them. Vibrant, determined young women, all in exciting new places their lives so cruelly snatched away in such a frightening way. Trisha's father Rick said, people talk about closure, but there is no closure. That void is always there. And for Michael's former partners who were subjected to such torment, and Michelle who almost died at his hands, their lives are forever changed as well. Michelle said she dreads going to sleep every night and is equally terrified to wake up. The devastation caused to so many people over those 15 years is unimaginable and unfathomable. It is safe to assume that Michael's crimes would have continued had it not been for his capture. The lengths he had already gone to proved he had no limits and knew no bounds. And it is terrifying to think about what could have happened next and to potentially so many more people. <laughs> 